Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, my name is Emily Friedlander. I'm the editor-in-chief of Thump, and you're listening to the Thump Podcast. Every week, I'm going to be welcoming editors from the Thump staff onto the show, and also some special guests. Everybody introduce themselves. Yeah, cool. Hi, I'm Michelle Luke. I'm the features editor here at Thump. I'm Colin Joyce, the managing editor. I'm Anna Cogerado, the news editor. So what have you guys been listening to this week? Michelle? I've been really digging this compilation by a Parisian collective called Casual Gabbers. And what they do is sort of take Gabber music and Gabber influences, but like make really cool sort of like hybrid club tracks out of it. And I'm super digging it because I have always been really into Gabber, but it's hard to find like new contemporary Gabber that's actually good. But what they're doing is just so on point and everything that I've been looking for for the past few years. So I'm super down. Can you tell me a little bit more about Gabber? Well, like, what is Gabber? What is Gabber? Okay. As if I haven't heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> Gabber is sort of um, a, a hardcore dance music style that originated from like uh, the Netherlands, specifically Rotterdam. I think it's really interesting that it arose sort of as a response to the seriousness and snobbery of house and techno in Amsterdam at the time. So I actually found this really sick Gabber track the other day that was like the first or second track ever made. And it's called, um, well, in translated, it's like, where the fuck is Amsterdam? <laughs> So it's very much just like sort of tongue in cheek, but very earnest. And I think that's what has attracted a lot of the younger producers to Gabber now is both that it's funny, but also very, very earnest and very sincere in this like passionate feeling that comes out of it. Also, I also found out that Gabber means friend in Dutch. It's so cute. <laughs> that's so cute. A genre called friend. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, what I've been listening to this week is pretty much the exact opposite. I've been really into this record on Revenge by Visible Cloaks. They're a duo from Portland. I guess it could loosely be termed as ambient music, but it's definitely the like super granular laptop sample sort of thing that people like motion graphics have been doing over the last couple of years. It's like really twitchy and weird, but it still has this like feeling of peace around it, which is like everything that I've gravitated to over the last like six months. Reassemblage is the name of the record. I've not been listening to anything super new. I've been listening to a lot of Prince this week because not all of his music, but all of his Warner Brothers catalogue is now available on Spotify and other streaming services, which is somewhat controversial. But when he died last year, I think like a lot of other people, I really wanted 
to listen to as much of his music as possible and actually really struggled because a lot of it isn't, it's not on YouTube, it wasn't on streaming services. A lot of it is now available back on Spotify. So I have been reacquainting myself with the catalogue, with the back catalogue. What is the one thing about Prince that really speaks to you? He was a deeply, deeply fascinating character and artist who clearly had so many internal conflicts and it has come across so much in his music and also in the various points in his life when he spoke out against different things and sort of had started off being such a gay icon and then had a really troubled relationship with that later in life when he, I think, sort of found religion or whatever happened. To me, listening though this week has been more about, it's almost been this delayed response when whenever a major artist dies, you just, you want to devour as much of of their content as possible and their music. And with Prince, that was really hard because I didn't have any of his albums on digital, on non-digital formats. I am reading Tim Lawrence's book, Love Saves the Day, right now, which is a history of disco culture in general in New York. And it spans kind of the late 60s and the 70s. And it talks a lot about the loft and as... Many of you know, the founder of The Loft, David Mancuso, sadly passed away last year. And when he died, somebody on my Facebook feed posted this really amazing mix of his. And it's seven hours long. It was recorded at The Loft in 2011. Basically, the first Loft party was on Valentine's Day in, I think, 1970. And the invitation said, Love Saves the Day, which some people read as an acronym for LSD. (laughs) But the vision of love that the party presented was one very different from Valentine's Day. It was about more community love and love that goes across, you know, barriers of sexuality and ethnicity and class. And I have been listening to it a lot because I like to think of Valentine's Day more in that way. And it made me less depressed to listen to it. And it's amazing. And it even has has a lot of 80s stuff on it. And it also has like disco and funk stuff. But then it also has crazy psychedelic tracks, including something by the people from Cannes, which is like really sick. Holgar Suke and uh, how do you say Yaki Leibsite, who who died died recently. Yeah. Yeah. I think I saw um, somebody on Twitter, probably, I think it was Andy Beta, tweeted, can we just rename Valentine's Day Love Saves the Day? (laughs) I'm about it. I'm about reclaiming Valentine's Day. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Why don't we call it LSD Day? Probably the most high-profile event that touched upon our world in a way uh, was the Grammys. How many of you guys watched? I'm just curious. I did not watch live. Uh, Nor did I. I didn't watch it. I mean, I'm asking that not to embarrass you, but to sort of reclaim the idea of it being cool to not watch the Grammys, (laughs) because I watched them because I had to help out with social media stuff around them, and it was hell. It was it was terrible, (laughs) and I think a number of musicians didn't watch, didn't attend either um, this year. No Kanye West, no Justin Bieber, no Drake, uh, no Frank Ocean. Like people that like released major major albums that were nominated and won this year that just like did not show up and Colin why do you think that is you wrote a piece about it I think 
people see it as not representing youth culture and culture that's not old and white specifically. I think that you see that in the way that some of the awards went. People definitely are trying to ascribe that to the narrative of the Adele versus Beyonce thing that played out in a number of the big categories that night, which is Adele's, should be noted, wildly successful and wildly popular album 25, ran away with the album of the year over Beyonce's Lemonade, which everybody thought was the more like groundbreaking record of the two of them and deserving. And I don't know that I disagree with that, but the Grammys have a history of giving those sorts of awards to white, safe artists. Right, like when Taylor Swift won over Kendrick, that was also a big deal right. last year. Yeah, and even in like the rap categories, Macklemore winning over Kendrick. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a long history of that happening, and I think that that makes people not want to even participate in it. And, and me personally, the piece that I wrote was like, this happens every year and it's hard to even be like disappointed in that result anymore. Like, I mean, like it's frustrating, like it's really wildly frustrating that, that the institution of the industry like makes it so that this happens every year, but it like is almost not even worth my emotional investment anymore. You had a line in the piece where you said that it was a celebration of the industry and not music. Yeah industry rather than artistry and I was sort of quoting Kanye from a couple of years ago when he stole the mic from Beck. Yeah, no, I mean it's 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 always been a sales award and I mean there are upsets within that. I think that there was some thought that Sturgill Simpson could come away with the album of the year award if Adele and Beyonce split the vote or something like that, but some things just feel inevitable and I think Adele breaking sales records to like um, nearly 2 years ago meant that she was going to win these awards. What about electronic music in this category? I know that it's had a strange position. The two electronic music categories, Best Dance Recording and Best Dance Electronic Album, the older of the two of them, which I believe is Best Dance Recording, only came about in 1998. So there's not much of a history of like electronic music specific categories at the Grammys. But yeah, they, they kind of always give them to pop records more or less. Like the Baja Men won Best Dance Recording for Who Let the Dogs Out when that came out. Um, But this year, I mean, it was fine. Uh, Flume, who I like a lot, the post-EDM experimentalist, won for his album Skin, which is a great record. Chainsmokers, who are polarizing, but I think people understand why they're popular, won uh, Best Dance Recording for Don't Let Me Down featuring Daya. (laughs) Shout out to Daya. Um, And I don't know. I mean, I I I said this in the piece too, but like, it's like, Okay, I'm fine with that, but the fact that I'm fine with that feels like kind of like wild that the safe results uh, is something that makes me happy somehow. You're happy that dan- actual dance music or electronic music artists won. Totally. <laughs> What's up with Louis Vega? You also published another piece about how he brought house music to the ground. Yeah, so that was written by our uh, frequent news writer, Crystal Rodriguez. She interviewed him and made the point in the article that it's like the first classic house record to be nominated for a Grammy. Like Louis Vega's won a couple times for remixes that he's done, but um, this was the first time he'd been nominated for a full record, and it's the first time that like the way we think of house music with like divas and a standard kick drum is nominated in that way. Um, To me, it's like 
cooler that Louis Vega was nominated than Flume because if the Grammys are going to be sort of out of touch with what's going on right now on the streets, like amongst the teens, at least they can just like pay tribute to like the old school classics, you know? I can see that sort of being their niche. (laughs) Yeah, when when the nominations were announced, I definitely tweeted something making fun of the fact that Louis Vega was nominated because it it it, uh, it felt the same kind of out of touch. But I get what you're saying. Like it is like it's like a, a record that could be played at a club, which isn't really true of like the rest of it, or at least not the clubs that we go to. <laughs> Has he ever gotten any kind of lifetime achievement award? Louis Vega? Um, I don't believe so. I, I think he's only won a couple times for in the remixed categories. But I mean. It's cool to see people like that getting nods. I think that there, and I don't totally know this for sure, I think that there's something with the um, genre-specific, it's like a council or something, like that that they basically are vetting these genre categories Mm. more specifically than they are for the, um, the big awards. So I think that you see that filter through in some of the stuff. Anna, over at our news desk, which is not an actual desk. It's right it's next the to same, my desk. Yeah, it's the same desk, but you know, it's conceptually a different desk. Anna worked on a story with a writer about Trump's travel ban and its effects on musicians trying to tour the United States. Now, I know that there have been some updates to the story since we published it. Yeah, President Trump signed an executive order on January 27th restricting travel from seven Muslim-majority countries and also indefinitely suspending the Syrian refugee program. This has obviously had huge impact on hundreds of thousands of people, particularly devastating effect on refugees. It's a problem of this kind of humanitarian crisis kind of level, which it's not really an exaggeration to say that. However, on February 3rd, a federal judge in Seattle issued a restraining order on the executive order, which has effectively blocked it. We don't know what's going to happen with it next. Trump has said that he's going to fight this legal battle and there are still ongoing lawsuits. However, it's kind of gone a bit quiet now, but he has also said that he's going to just write a whole new executive order. And given Trump's early days of his presidency, who who knows what's going to happen? <laughs> For many electronic musicians and musicians from all genres, the damage has pretty much already been done because artists from those countries have had to cancel their tours. A couple of the artists that our writer, Sophie Wiener, spoke to for her piece Ash Kucha and Madaya. Both artists are from Iran. They they both no longer live in Iran basically because of their music. They've had to both cancel tours in the US because of the ban. And a lawyer that Sophie spoke to, he put it really bluntly and he said that a lot of these artists summers are completely screwed because festivals are not going to take the risk and they're not going to want to book artists from these countries and it's going to have a devastating effect on their ability to tour. The U.S. market is a huge financial, it's it's a huge stream of revenue, financial stream of revenue for these artists, and not having access to it is going to be crippling for them. So the idea is that even if the ban does not go through and is completely squashed, this will still have an effect on musicians. Yeah, definitely. And the problem is that we just don't know what's going to happen to the ban. Even if this one does get squashed, it's probably quite likely that Trump will try something else. It was one of his 
campaign promises that he seems to be taking really seriously. So it's really this atmosphere and environment of uncertainty that's just permeating across all different aspects of society. And in this particular case, what's going to happen with immigration. So it has this trickle down effect where festival bookers, they're probably not going to be paying super close attention to the news. They just know that, oh, well, immigration is an issue. So let's not take the risk. Let's not book these artists. I think it's really interesting how electronic music is said to be like the most global form of music because there tend to be fewer lyrics. It's less of a like hyper-local scene, you know. It's a very international movement. Mm. So I'm going to venture and say that I think this travel ban affects electronic music more than any other genre. Yeah, definitely. Especially because, to put it bluntly and to talk about the numbers, touring is how these musicians make most of their money. So taking that away is hugely devastating. I think one of the things that's raised in the piece that's pretty interesting is that it was already hard for these artists Mm -hmm. to book tours in the US. Yeah. One of the artists that she spoke to, Ash Kusha, he's experienced this before. He's had his visa to the US denied. Immigration doesn't really give a reason when they do things like Mm -hmm. this. But he's had a lot of trouble coming into the US before. And other artists and other people that she spoke with for the piece have said, well, actually, you know, the US since 9-11 has had, there's been a big clampdown on immigration from Middle Eastern countries, all to do with the threat of terrorism and the Patriot Act and stuff like that. So this is an ongoing problem and artists from those countries have previously been targeted. And so a lot of them said that they're not surprised that this has happened, but still it's kind of taken, this has taken, it's taken it to the next level. On the flip side, though, I'm really interested in artists who are deciding not to come to America Mm -hmm. as a sort of protest. Like, they're not being banned, but they're just like, fuck this, I am not going to play here, like, because I don't want to. Can you tell us a little more about that? Yeah, so Dave Clark, who, he's based in Amsterdam, but he's a British techno DJ. He has cancelled his US tour out of solidarity, and basically for exactly those reasons. He doesn't want to come to America as long as Trump is president. And there have been other artists who they've spoken out. Dave Clark is the only one on top of my head that I know who's from a country that hasn't been directly affected who has cancelled his tour in protest. Do you think that's a viable form of protest? (laughs) Hmm. It's solidarity. In the grand scheme of things, it's probably not going to make a huge difference other than raising awareness. I think I saw some people just like talking on social media about how, you know, these DJs who are boycotting America are still playing in a lot of countries with other problematic political issues. So it just seems a little bit, I don't know. I think this is true of of everybody, of sort of the broader reaction to the Trump administration. People just don't know what to do and they're trying to do whatever they feel is appropriate or they feel they can make a difference in their own way, whether that's taking part in a march or going to the airports and protesting the travel ban or cancelling your tour if you're Dave Clark. This is an unprecedented political situation, and so people are trying to do whatever they can. And yeah, sure, you know, it's um, it might not make any difference, but I guess it's trying. Michelle, you worked on an op-ed about why people should stop criticizing DJs and other musicians who try to use their visibility and use their platform to express their political views. It was written by one of our contributors, Dear Morney, and he had basically noticed that a bunch of DJs like Seth Troxler um, had written about their 
political experiences and views and gotten really negative responses from either fans or trolls, basically just saying, shut up, you shouldn't be talking about politics, stick to music. And, you know, this phrase has been used throughout, like, the beginning of time to tell artists to sort of, like, stay in their corner. But I think what uh, Austin or Dear Morning was sort of incensed by was the idea that, like, we're telling DJs to shut up now when there are so many important things that they could be using their platform to speak out against. He was saying, you know, in previous years, maybe when the stakes were lower, it was like, fine, you can tell an artist to do that. But now it is almost imperative for artists to use their platforms and their power to spread information or even just express views that they, like every other sort of common citizen who's been suddenly politicized by everything that's happening right now, just to express themselves. I thought it was a really good piece. I think that I agree that Uh, the need to be political seems more urgent now than ever. But but one of my questions personally is, do I give a shit about what these DJs think about politics? You know what I mean? Do I go to DJs to learn about politics? I think it obviously depends like on who's talking. And um, I want to shout out sort of Gunnar Haslam and Tin Man. They wrote a really, really interesting piece in Accelerator about the idea of techno against fascism. And obviously there has been a strain of like politicalization within electronic music since like underground resistance it's not like a new idea or anything like that so you know I think that obviously there are interesting viewpoints to be found within the dance community but I don't need every other tech house DJ to be telling me what they think about politics. but I think I mean maybe a tech house fan would like like you look to different things but maybe like someone that's following Seth Troxler on Twitter doesn't have I mean uh, who knows but do I really need Moby to be telling me about the alleged sort of conspiracy theory leaks that he has like that's sort of the extreme version of that right when we ask artists to be political back up back up what did Moby do so Moby basically posted on Instagram that he has oh Facebook sorry, that he has like confidential information, insider information about Trump's ties to Russia. And he didn't actually like say what information he has. He just said that he knows that like... Can't burn your sources. The dossier <laughs> Even if was you're Moby. true. <laughs> it was just the information in the dossier. And he was saying that he knows, he knows from speaking to people he knows in DC that yeah yeah the and is true. that he has accurate information that the Trump dossier is true and also that there are links that go back to the beginning of the campaign between Russia and the Trump administration and that effectively Trump is being blackmailed by Russia and there was also some mention of how there is going to be war with Iran. I 100% believe that somebody that Moby Trust told him that it's all true. <laughs> sure, sure. So, so do I. And so do I. And I'm sure, I'm sure Moby, you know, he feels, he feels like it's true and he feels like he should post it. And, and, that, and that's all fine. And back to what you were saying, Michelle, my only issue is, I, you know, I am interested, I'm interested in hearing all sorts of different people's views. And that's fine. And that, that's, that's cool. And maybe I'm going to learn something. And I don't think it's fair to say you can't talk about politics because you're a musician. Because then that starts opening up the conversation to, well, you can't talk about politics because you're xyz and that's not a that's a problematic position to take however this is related to the moby thing we just have to be careful about where this information is coming from and whether it's accurate moby is one great example we don't know who his sources are we don't know where this information has come from and that's moby knows and that's fine (laughs) and moby can publish it on his facebook but then publications music publications and also international publications pick it up 
and give it even more of a platform. And the same with the DJ stuff. I've saw some DJs, I'm, I'm not going to name names because it's not really cool, but I've seen DJs tweeting things that aren't, they've, they've seen something on TV and they've misunderstood it and they've tweeted out something that's not quite accurate and it's just spreading more false information. Which is not something that is limited to artists in any course, way. It's yeah. like you look at your Facebook feed and it's, as a journalist, mm. it can be very frustrating for me as a left-leaning journalist to see all of these left-leaning Facebook friends of mine posting information from non-reputable news sources all day long. And it's just an endemic problem. Yeah. So the um, takeaway is that DJs are people too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's just... Uh, and the, the issue becomes where I agree with you, Michelle, is that when these people are really famous, they have more power to spread false information. Mm. And we're basically, we're no better than Trump is in a way if we're just posting bad information. Exactly. All the time. I mean, I want to go on the record and say that I think it's great this sort of like evolution towards wokeness that you see going on in everywhere in popular culture. And I think it sort of relates to the Grammys idea as well. You know, everyone is demanding that popular culture reflect their own reality more and be more diverse and yeah. inclusive. And they want DJs to talk about politics as well because everyone is talking about politics. So, you know, musicians and award ceremonies can't exist in some like tone deaf vacuum that like just seems like completely disconnected from reality. I think this is a good thing. And, um, you know, I think it's a good thing, again, that <laughs> no shade to her, but Taylor Swift, someone like Taylor Swift, now seems so out of touch because she refuses to talk about politics, you know? Um, so I think all of this is good. But yeah, like, I guess, I guess we're all sort of agreeing here that, like, the danger is misinformation and clutter because there's just so much happening right now that, like, I do not need some Ibiza DJ to be, like, cluttering up my Facebook with their political views that are probably, like, misinformed. Chaos is broken out. People are very confused. And, you know, we're all humans here, as you said. <laughs> and people are just not sure what to do right now and kind of Yeah, and they're, just trying, they're trying to process. And who are we to say that how they're processing is in the right way? But... Maybe it's more helpful for them to use their platform to help people mobilize them. Yeah. You know, donate to this charity, come to this rally instead of, here's my two cents about the travel ban. I think that's why, so something that we published um, just after the travel ban that seemed to be very popular was um, Fortet put together a playlist of artists from countries that were affected by the travel ban. It's such a small and easy token, but that was just, it was it was so lovely almost that mm. here, are some, here are some really great music from artists from these places that we are trying to alienate and stigmatize. If you didn't really have any overt political message there, although it was so clear. Something I like to think about is that just being yourself and living a life that is antithetical or different from Trump's vision of what life should be is political in itself. Mm. Making music, living your life the best you can, putting on parties that are inclusive, dancing to music is also something political. And just being yourself and being a musician can be political, I think, without you having to say something always. The last thing I wanted to talk about today was a memoir, op-ed style piece that Michelle wrote that was really, really moving. 
about a experience she had this January, <laughs> kind of switching up her lifestyle a little bit. Do you want to tell us about the story? Yeah, so I wrote about, you know, going through sober January, which is a thing that maybe some of you guys know about. It's pretty popular, I realize, that lots of people do it. It's basically not drinking or doing drugs or not drinking and doing drugs for a month. And I heard about it through my friends who are, like, longtime DJs in the scene, and they party so hard, and I've always looked up to, like, how they've managed to just, like, look fresh and keep themselves sane. And they told me that this is, like, one of their sort of survival methods that they use to like be able to stay healthy just to have this like month of like detoxing before they like start their tour so I decided to try it out myself and you know the piece was sort of about my like long relationship with drugs and talking a little bit about like my struggles with addiction and like sort of what drugs gave me but how you know they have this darker side that everyone knows about and it was a little scary for me to write this article under my own name because it was a lot of very personal information that I was like oh my god what if my mom sees this, which I don't think she has yet. Oh my God, hopefully my mom isn't listening to this podcast either. (laughs) Um, But ultimately I decided that I really wanted to sort of tell my story because I think it's really important to sort of destigmatize the idea of like drug use and like a lot of people who work in electronic music or who go to raves are exposed to drugs all the time and I think the more we talk about it and the more we support each other the better we can get through it and be safe and what's been really cool is like after this article came out um, a lot of like random people have been reaching out to me to like share their stories about going to AA or NA or telling me about like crazy things like a psychedelic therapy group that you can go to if you've like had a really bad trip and like need to talk to someone non-judgmental who like coach you through it um but the end of my article which sort of goes back to everything that we've been talking about today about politics you know was that I found it very interesting when I was sober to go through the inauguration because this was in January right Um, and see America becoming so political and feeling like actually like this feeling of sobriety is the best way for me to move forward in such a like crazy political atmosphere I love being able to be clear headed to be able to process everything that's going on And the idea of like taking a bunch of drugs and like running away to some dark rave and escaping from reality, even though I understand that that is a very like healthy and important thing to do for yourself and for your own like well-being, it didn't feel like that was like a a way of a mode of political resistance that was very effective, you know? Like I, I think what you were saying before, Emily, about how like throwing a party in itself is political because you are like making in this inclusive space for like marginalized people who might not otherwise be able to find acceptance other in other places. But at the same time, I was like, you know, the idea of hedonism and escapism is very sort of like 90s in a way, like just like, you know, let's just party really hard and like not pay attention to reality. And that's like punk as fuck. Like, I don't know if that really like spoke to me as much as like, I want to go to like a fundraiser thrown by like disc woman and donate my money to the ACLU and then wake up the next morning and go to a protest. Like that to me feels like I'm actually doing something that's like, maybe able to change what's going on around us. So anyway, the point of the article, I think, in the end was that, like, sobriety to me 
has this really interesting political dimension. And I think it's also really interesting that the generation below us, Generation Z, who are kids who are like from 12 to 22 right now, are like, according to studies everywhere, drinking and doing a lot fewer drugs than we are. And the reason that they continuously give when people ask them, why are you deciding to be sober, is because they feel like the world is really fucked up and like going out and partying all the time is like not going to help them be prepared for what all the challenges that they have to face. They, this one teenager basically said, like, there's just, I just have too much to do. <laughs> and I think that that's how I feel too. You know, we have too much going on right now to be able to afford to get wasted every single weekend and not pay attention to what's going on because not paying attention is literally how they're going to get us, right? Like, so we got we to gotta stay woke. We got to stay sober. <laughs> Caring is cool. But that said, I did, like, you know, go out on February 1st and, like, smoke a ton of weed, so... <laughs> What was it like raving while sober? I really loved it. I found that my body like continuously rewarded me with endorphins for not having like depleted it earlier or whatever. Like it just gave me a lot of like natural happiness and energy. I felt a lot more present in my conversations. I think when I'm high, I'm usually like, oh, like I want to be on the dance floor. I don't be, I don't want to be talking to this person or like, oh, who's that hot guy? Let me go like lurk on him. Whereas like when I'm sober, I'm just like, I'm a lot more in control of like how I feel and like who I'm talking to and my thoughts. And that makes me a lot more present and it gives me a sort of authenticity when I'm raving. I mean, yeah, you do have this sort of weird side effect where, of course, you see how fucked up everyone else looks around you. And sometimes it can be a little bit ugly, but um, it can also be funny. It depends on what kind of attitude you go into it with. Um, And I think that the only times that it got really hard was when I got really, really tired around like two or three in the morning, but I really wanted to go to another party. And I knew that if I just like smoked something or like did some drug, I would be able to keep going. But the thing about sobriety is that it forces you to listen to your body. I think that when you take drugs, you're basically saying like, no, my body's my bitch. I'm going to do whatever I want. And my body's just going to like do, I'm going to abuse my body according to my will because I want to have fun and I'm in this pursuit of pleasure. But when you're sober, you are your body's bitch. You know, you have to listen. If your body just, like, cannot go anymore, you have to go home. But that sort of feeling of, like, connection with, like, I kept thinking, this is so cheesy, but, like, I kept feeling, I'm so, like, in touch with my most authentic self. And, like, that's really how I felt. And I think one of the biggest lessons for me is that, you know, I'm not chasing the high, I'm chasing happiness. That's ultimately what I want. And so if the high isn't bringing me happiness and being sober is bringing me happiness, then maybe I need to like be sober more, at least like learn moderation, as they say. I feel that a lot with like going out in general, like what you were saying about like hitting that point, like hitting the wall of like, uh, I I can either like drink a bunch more or go home. Mm. Like it's always for me more rewarding to go home. Like every <laughs> single every single time I'm I'm so much more happy to like wake up in the morning and make myself an omelet than to see like two more hours of a DJ that I won't remember the name of. But that said, like there is that amazing magical 6 a.m. 7 a.m. zombie moment that I love, which is when like all of the drunk people and all of the sober people go home and it's just like the freaks left and it's just like this magical witchy hour that I really like and can't really be there unless you're like a little fucked up. I, I, I can honestly say I've never made it. <laughs> did, you, did you make it to that point sober and what does it look like 
Did it look different when you're looking at it through a sober person's eyes to when you are not sober? I made it to noon on the last rave that I went to Unter and it was phenomenal. Like I was dancing the entire time and just like really loving it and really connecting with the vibe. So yeah, I don't think that it became like less beautiful because I was sober or anything because I think those moments genuinely are beautiful because it's just like the freak parade. Sober or moderation I think it's a really good filter for the crap that maybe you would tolerate if you were more adult in the mind so I've definitely you know you get to a point in the night and you're like actually you know what I'm gonna leave and upon reflection the venue was full of idiots or like the music (laughs) wasn't so great and I wasn't really into it and then yeah there have definitely been times when I've managed to stay up really really late or you know into the early hours sober or having like not not taken very much and it's actually because the elements of the party have just been so perfect and they've just been the music and the people and the venues everything has been so great and I just feel that when you when you so when you go out partying sober you just have this like beautiful filter for all of the crap stuff I think it's the best feeling to wake up the next night (laughs) basically (laughs) because I woke up at 9 p.m. and I was like oh my god I feel zero guilt right now because I know that I was out till noon because I was having such a good time not because like my friend gave me a bump of ketamine in the bathroom you know it was like the best best feeling of absolution but I don't know I think that Maybe one of the darker things about this article, though, is that even though it was such a positive experience for me, when I tried to tell this to people or some of my river friends, they would just look so, like, don't tell me this, like, in (laughs) denial. Like, I don't want to hear this. I don't want to know how, like, being sober made you happy. God, you poor thing. And it made me realize that, like, our community does have a slightly problematic relationship to drugs that maybe I was, like, very, like, complicit in as well before. I'm not saying that, like, doing drugs is bad, obviously, but this idea that you need to do drugs in order to go out, which perpetuates beyond the dance music community as well. I think a lot of sort of, like, plebes think that it's, like, a very druggy scene and, like, I can't go to a rave unless I have Molly. Like, we need to break that connection, I think. Yeah, David Mankiso, his whole thing, right? Was he sober? I think he was, wasn't he? Aside from the LSD thing. According to the book, he was actually an early acolyte of Timothy Leary. Right on. (laughs) Yeah, and he used to, he read Timothy Leary's book, which is about LSD as a path to spiritual enlightenment. And he started throwing his own kind of acid journeys in the loft in his apartment. And apparently they were originally just hang like you know meditation acid trip therapeutic kind of sessions and then he started playing music and allowing people to get up and dance or some people kind of spontaneously got up and danced and then over time the dancing grew more and more prominent and that's how I don't really know about what his relationship was to drugs later but it's not a place where you have to be on drugs to enjoy most of the people I know who go don't drink when they're there and it's really about the dancing. It's really about like the sensual experience of dancing in a room full of balloons and physical sensation that is not necessarily drug induced. Just kind of like, it's a celebration of sensuality, but it can be a sober sensuality. 
which I think is beautiful. One of my favorite David Mancuso and drug stories is that um, he was really into exploring like the very edges of like consciousness, obviously. You know, he was like a psychonaut. And he decided that one day he was just going to like completely retreat into himself and like stop eating, stop talking and sort of just like make himself crazy basically to see like what he could discover on like the edges of his mind and he had, he had to go to a mental hospital check, check check himself in they asked him what his name was he could not answer and he was just so far gone for like a few days but like one day i guess he just decided actually fuck this there's nothing here that like i can that 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 i can learn from and he just snapped out of it walked back to the loft and started throwing parties again like what a g it was almost like he was trying to reach a state of dissolved ego right there was like no private he didn't believe in private property um i think he was i just read this passage in the book but yeah he was only eating um stolen food that was uncooked no substances nothing and then he even apparently took the door off of his apartment um and because he didn't want to own an apartment and allowed you know homeless people to come in and, it, and if they came in he would just be like hey man what's up go with the flow well, that's one of the central traits of acid like one of the like most recurring things that will happen to you when you're like in a good trip is like the dissolve feeling of like your own ego and you don't know who you are anymore because you're like part of the universe. (laughs) It's interesting to think about whether you can get closer to that state with or without drugs and whether the dancing itself can be an opening experience of that kind. This has been a production of Vice Media and Thump. If you would like to read some of the stories we've been talking about, please log on to our website. Thump.vice.com. And you can follow us on social media on twitter.com slash thump thump. Or our UK Twitter right now is twitter.com slash UK thump. Or on Facebook, I'm pretty sure this is right. We are facebook.com slash thump thump. You can read all of our articles there and on our website. And have a good one. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.